1: Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author, and podcaster by night, and FOMO Sapiens 24 7. And the topic today is a spicy one psychedelics and the search to understand, I guess, the nature of our consciousness, just to It's not light. That's pretty heavy. But I have a guest today who is super interesting and puts all of this in language that we can understand. Her name is Kelsey Ramsden, and she's the CEO of Cure Health. Now, Kelsey has over 15 years of experience founding, scaling, and operating innovative companies across Canada and the Caribbean. And she's built multiple eight-figure businesses from the ground up and has twice been named Canada's top female entrepreneur. Now, Kelsey holds her MBA from the Richard Ivey School of Business at the University of Western Ontario. And in this conversation, you're going to learn, first of all, how an MBA gets into the business of psychedelics. We're also going to talk about what psychedelics are all about, how they work, and why the industry is becoming one of the great sort of hot industries for the future. And finally, we're going to talk about how Kelsey expects to scale a business that is kind of taboo to so many people. You know, you talk about this and a lot of people are just like, look at you like you have three heads. And I have to say, as somebody who's been learning about it, it's all new to me And so Kelsey really unpacks things in a way that, for me, just made me understand why this industry is so interesting to so many people. Now, I have to thank a listener, Amrit, for giving me the idea to do this show. And so my small ask today is to just say to you, if you have a topic you want me to cover, is it NFTs? Is it crypto? Is it uh, you, you name it? just write me you can connect with me at let's connect at or find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis or on Twitter at PJ McGinnis. Just tell me what you're interested in, maybe some ideas of guests and I will take it from there. All right and now on to the interview. So as you know, I'd like to start every interview with the same question. So I started by asking Kelsey this: What's the most important decision you've had to make to get to where you are today?
0: I'm going to answer this two ways. One is, the most important decision that I didn't make soon enough
1: Mm.
0: was to believe in my intuition. And the most important decision I ultimately made was not only to believe in my intuition, but to not justify it.
1: Unpack that for me, that last bit.
0: Yeah. So typically when I started, when I started this idea of believing in my intuition, I'd be like, you know, I, I think, or I feel this. And the reason I feel it is because this. And then I try and like tag together all of these pieces. You know, intuition is just like the sum of our lived experience sensorially coming through. It's like, uh, and you but you really can't do a very good job of substantiating intuition if you're if you're a FOMO sapien and you've done Mm. a lot of different things and lived a lot of different lives in one life. Mm. To be able to articulate that tangential, almost like The known, I just know, is sufficient if you are an okay leader. (laughs) You know, then you got to back it up. Then you got to execute and have a little bit of success, do okay. And then, oh, you know, over time it gets easier for people to believe your intuition. But part of that is believing it enough yourself to be able to stand in it and ride it out. Because any big visionary intuition driven thing is going to have some headwinds going to have some rocks and bumps and you have to go i'm stalwart i'm headed where the puck is going not where it is like i'm canadian so i have to use a, a gretzky reference so that's that's the piece for me it took me a long time to get there i was like i need i need an idea. i need another piece of paper i need another whatever and all this justification around um having visionary ideas or taking a stand or making a stake and really committing to it took me a bit longer than it should because it's been happening since I was like a 12-year-old kid, for Christ's sakes, if I'm honest. But I never I never put enough credence in it because I thought you needed a lot of other boxes ticked in order to be a good enough, smart enough, right enough person to have your own ideas.
1: I love the, the way you put that because it is like – I think the way I'm thinking as you're talking, I'm thinking about courage. And mm. a lot of times, courage is one of those things that like <laughs> – we can be incredible people. We can be really prepared. We can think we know what we're doing, but we don't have the courage to act. Mm. Now you've had, I was, you know, you're here today to talk about this, is a company that you, that you're running, which is incredible. Uh, really interesting space that you're in mind, your health. And you're in, you know, the the place where psychedelics hits the mainstream and you're an MBA who's doing this. So, I mean, talking about courage that, I mean, <laughs> when I read your bio, I was like, that's really out there because, this, this whole space is, it's its a space that has a lot of sort of like baggage with it, mm. but is evolving quickly and it's quickly becoming mainstream. So before we get into this whole thing, I just want to get into sort of like, why did you end up in this space?
0: Well, I think it's a little bit tied to the beginning, which is, um, I suppose it may be true to say I've never been typical, you know, maybe I wasn't always the normal normal person. Um, but I did a lot of the normal things. So I like, you know, did my undergrad and I did it and all all that. But on myself, I always struggled with whether it was just like mental health issues, sufficiency. all, I don't know, like insert thing here. Generally, I'm just going to generalize for a moment, really driven, ambitious people tend to be not entirely right. You know, mm-hmm. we have this like syndrome of like incessant never enoughness, this performance, like like frothing at the mouth and perspiring for the win. Always is kind of how I have grown up. And I got into uni, and um, I wasn't much of a drinker, but psychedelics were around. So I started doing mushrooms occasionally, and then I was like, I don't really like this whole like partying on mushrooms thing. I Actually, just want to take some mushrooms in my room on my own and write a bunch of stuff down. I'm having some pretty good ideas here, and that kind of became my connection to self—the place where I was like, this intuition proved out to be real. I like had this riff about a thing, and then that, uh, and then I went and did it, and it was, it was in alignment with what my gifts are. Okay, well, maybe there's something there. And then, you know, you grow up and drugs are for kids and you do your MBA and responsible adult humans don't rely on, you know, tricks are for kids. And so I went and I did the things that you should do. I became a consultant. I started a company. I made a bunch of money. I won a bunch of awards. And then I thought when I jumped all those hoops and collected all the gold coins and I hit my mountaintop, I was going to feel whole and I felt hollow. It's felt ever much as like, not enough in this and still everything that I didn't feel before so I went into therapy did a bunch of that I'm impatient it wasn't working spent a couple of years uh, all the best people all the things and then then a friend of mine who was involved in some of the research at Johns Hopkins said hey I think you should check out this psilocybin research I know you used to love mushrooms a lot you're probably open to it so I was like all right so I looked at the research, and then I became a patient of psychedelic psychotherapy myself about four years ago. And it, you know, I, I always want to like pump the brakes a moment to to say it's not the you know the silver bullet, but for me, it was you know the the saying is ten years of therapy in a day, and I retired out of my businesses. I didn't really need to work. I didn't need to feel that sense anymore i didn't need all the other things i just felt myself and true and clear and totally great and then i'm a terrible retired person so i uh, saw the market coming together for psychedelics And like a good capitalist i thought how can i contribute and add value and do well and do good at the same time i knew a lot of people in the psychedelic world and i knew how to raise money and i knew how to execute and so enter mind care and that's how we got here
1: Psychedelics are nothing new, obviously. I mean, it, they, they were a big thing in like the 60s. Everybody knows that. And of course, they yep. go back in, in spiritual ceremonies to, you know, for a very long time. Yes. But what is happening today? Like, because it's uh, at this market, you know, you hear about it. You know, there are like Silicon Valley types and everything. And I was in L.A. this summer and I felt like everywhere I went, people were talking about it. Mm. W- and so like it has a little bit, I was feeling a little FOMO, but like, well, I got to learn about this, hence why I want to talk to you. But tell us what is going on. What has changed to make this market start to just go crazy?
0: I think there's three things that have happened. One thing is nothing new, to your point. Research was going on in the 60s. Um, the, the, the moment that something became acceptable there, though, was when we, when we, kind of started to rely a lot more on science and a little bit less on the pressure of society. And I, I don't want to demonize religion, but this idea of what's right and wrong isn't quite as, as as deliberate anymore. And so there's a lot more gray in society. So we can rely on science a bit more, okay? Because we can trust that. So that's one thing that happened between the science before and the science today. The second thing that happened was the advancement of cannabis and this idea that people started to go, wait a minute, maybe some of these things that were just lying around already could be purposeful. Now, the downfall of cannabis was that they never did the research. So it's all anecdotal and it went to market a bit quick. And the difference with psychedelics is I always liken it to it's the difference between a, a Toyota and a Ferrari. You know, you smoke a joint, you have a little rumble around town, it gets you where you want to go, it's a good time, you can have a laugh. You're probably not going to crash too hard if you kind of do. Psychedelics are a Ferrari. It's tight handling, very powerful. It can take you places far and wide and get you there in a way that you've never experienced it before in style. But if you crash and you mistreat it, it's just really a lot less fun than having one too many tokes on a joint. And so this is the second piece, which is evidence that really puts it into this clinical research paradigm that is happening today. And then the third thing, unfortunately, is the world is suffering more than it ever did. It's just, the numbers are just true. More people with anxiety, more more people with crippling depression, PTSD, um, and people are living longer. And so this kind of crescendo of need meets this ability to believe in science, decoupled from the societal expectation, meets this awareness that these things are actually very powerful tools. And if we clinically study them, I mean, the FDA giving a nod to
1: MDMA for research was the beginning. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you gotta do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. You know, it's funny you talk about this, this notion of the Ferrari. I was thinking, I was, my next question was exactly this, which is, you know, when people smoke pot, they like watch the Simpsons and laugh and, you know, so, you know, which is nothing. I'm not, and I'm not judging that because the Simpsons is funny, whatever. But when they use psychedelics, they start to contemplate the essence of humanity and, and get into like really heavy places that can be very therapeutic. Or as you said, it could be really hard to deal with and, and damaging and you crash the car. Now, for folks who don't, you know, maybe aren't familiar with the space, and most of us aren't, I think, or or we have really big misperceptions, like, how does it actually work? Like, why is it that you take psilocybin, uh, you know, a a quote-unquote magic mushroom, as it were, and all of a sudden you're able to have these, like, deeply transformative experiences that you, you know, you've just equated to, and again, not to simplify it, but, you know, 10 years of therapy in, in a space of, you know, a couple of hours.
0: Yeah, so I'm gonna get I'm gonna paint the audience a quick picture of a spectrum. So people probably if if they've heard anything about it, they might have heard about microdosing and they might have heard about therapeutic or macrodosing. So for the people who haven't, just really briefly, a microdose is typically a sub-perceptual dose, meaning it's like drinking decaf coffee. You took something in, but you can't feel anything. This is like, even though the drug is there. And there's a, there is a little bit of caffeine in decaf, okay? Mm-hmm. Versus a macrodose, which is typically more than you would take to have a good time on a Friday night. This will really get you where you're headed. And there's no two ways about that. So when we, when we think about that dosage regime and we think about how this works, um, that low dose stuff is just working away and behind the scenes. And people will talk about low dosing psilocybin or LSD for focus, you know, for just like a little bit of an edge on a thing. Again, not dissimilar from a coffee or or what have you. Um, I would say it is a little bit dissimilar, but <laughs> but for context. Um, but then when we think about macro dosing, we're thinking about much higher doses. So typically, well, if we're talking about say psilocybin and not this is not medical advice. This is like not you know trying to, but that would be like three grams or more. Uh, people talk about the god dose is five grams or whatever the case, and that. What that does, and, and generally, when we're thinking about the therapeutic setting, to give paint a picture, we're in a nice place. It's not uh, your doctor's office. It is a room that probably has a couch and there's blankets. It's warm and cozy, and we're feeling lovely and fine. Or um, and there's eye shades. Like you see people, you know, if you travel first class in a plane, they give you the little thing to put over your eyes. to take, and then there's music, and uh, the music is pretty specific. psychedelia and um what it does in your mind is it downgrades the default mode network so what the default mode network is is your fight or flight so when we when we have difficult feelings or emotions um as humans we tend to protect ourselves so if i want to question my mortality the meaning of life why is it that i'm human and on the planet pretty well straight away i'm like "Eh, you know what i'd rather just go to the mall (laughs) or let's just you know or, or what about you know what about the jets so so it's a difficult and really challenging thing to do and and even furthermore if we're talking about depression anxiety ptsd you know a variety of really difficult things someone's been raped it's really challenging to go through talk therapy to really get beyond this default mode that works so hard to keep us safe. And so when we downgrade the default mode network, we're, we're able to watch it as if it was a movie. So if you, if you like, if you're okay with it, maybe I'll just do like a two minutes on my own first.
1: Please. I think for for folks that aren't familiar. Sure. And maybe have just seen it on like a TV show where it's portrayed in a very fantastical way. Yeah. This could be really helpful in understanding. So please go ahead.
0: So the, so my very first, um, therapeutic psychedelic experience was uh, and I I admittedly went in a little bit cocky. I was like, yeah, yeah, I just used to do mushrooms. Not a problem. And so they said, okay, well, when you feel it, you put up your hand and then there was, it was a group setting. We are in a kind of a, not a, not a bad joint. There's 16 bedrooms and uh, everyone had their own therapeutic room. And then you all take it at the same time. There's a, a number of therapists. And so anyway, long story short, I I take what they give me and I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be the last guy standing. I'm not, I'm the first person. It hits, I put my hand up and when it hits, it is um, like, kind of when you look in a kaleidoscope, right? Think about the Beatles and like the sixties. Okay. That is happening. It's not like face melting stuff or whatever, but there's colors and there's geodetic shapes. And so they take me up to my, my spot and I have my, my phone here and they've got it beside the bed and it's audio recording. So anything I say out loud is transcribed for me for a later date because an eight-hour psilocybin journey is a bit of a time to remember what happened at the start. And they put the music on my ears and they put my eye shades on. And so I'm in the dark in myself listening to this music. And the music really takes you where it's going. If it's intense, then we're going to go and visit some things that are a little bit heavier hitting. And if it's light, we're going to kind of, you know, maybe become one with the universe for a bit. And my own first experience was both. There were parts that were really hard, but true. And it's like watching a movie. I'm watching it unfold as if it wasn't me. And I, and so I don't have to have all the judgment. Like that guy was a jerk and I did this and that hurt me. And it was just a very freeing, and allow me to do a lot of forgiving. So that was, that was my experience. It was not short. uh, It wasn't easy, but it was worth it.
1: Yeah. I guess what's, you know, it's oftentimes people refer to those experiences as a trip. And it sounds from what you're saying that, you know, you had a series of experience, almost like you went on a trip somewhere and then you came back with like a whole set of new experiences that you could process in your life.
0: Okay. I love that you said that because here's the thing nobody talks about, but which I believe is probably the most important part, full stop integration. This is what we call it in the industry. So a lot of people go, wow, that was amazing. I forgave my mother for whatever. Okay, cool. Two days later, that sense, that visceral experience is very much gone. And now it's about, did you really, are you going to have the conversation with her? Are you going to bring that into your daily life and change how you choose to see things and communicate and be in, in your family and in yourself? So so when my therapist told me the very first experience, he said, 5% of this is going to be done between you and the drug. And 95% of this is going to be done with you and the world that didn't change at all. Only you did. And that's the part that is... Um, where the really long-lasting transformation happens. So you can be given all the tools, you know. Um, I always say, I joke with my MBA friends, having an MBA doesn't make you a business person. It makes you a person with an expensive piece of paper. It's what you do with the tools that you got in there that, you know, having a hammer doesn't make you a carpenter. Taking um, a bunch of mushrooms and doing a journey doesn't mean you're healed. You have to go and do something now about it. Um, but it gives you all the tools if you'd like to use them. And I think that's the big promise of psychedelics and mental health care when well-informed with people who know what they're doing, who can support you on the flip side. Don't just go and do it with your buddy and then you know come back to a typical Tuesday after you went and became one with the universe and expect everything to work out okay. It's not going to change too much, you know?
1: Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's, you know, the notion that it's a quick fix is, you know, I've, I've read, I've been in preparation of an interview and reading a lot about this. And I think it, there's a lot of things like that that people like to say, but you've just made a great point, which is that, first of all, this is no joke. And second of all, if you actually want to get the, the, the benefits of the treatment in a in a clinical setting, it, it is a process that needs to be led by a professional. Now, you started this company, MindCure Health. Tell us about what what you're building, because I think, you know, this is you're like kind of building the, the airplane as it's taking off, I would imagine. <laughs> so t- tell us about where this is going and what you think this is, you know, your vision is for this business.
0: Yeah, so we have two sides to the business. We have a drug research side. So that's looking at novel molecules, second generation molecules. Um, one of our programs is MDMA or MDMA-like molecule to treat lack of female sexual desire. So uh, because desire starts between your ears, there's working back from what we mostly talk about orgasm, then arousal, desire, desire is the beginning, it actually doesn't involve our bodies, it involves our minds. And a lot of people don't have access to desire by virtue of a variety of things, whether it's negative self image, body image, negative relationship, etc. So that's one of the arenas that we're researching with psychedelic molecules. And then on the other side, we have a SaaS platform, digital therapeutics technology, which um, we believe will transform how mental health care is conducted outside of psychedelia as well. So this idea of, I mean, most people have a whoop or a Fitbit or a, or a ring and we're tracking our sleep and our, all our other things. And it occurs to me that the most valuable asset we, most of us have is our mind, And we treat it like something that is uncontrollable, like we we can't utilize the insights of how we show up, when we show up, and optimize our mental wealth, as I call it. And so our digital therapeutics platform is built to help therapists and individuals to onboard and optimize their paradigm of care from end to end, including all of this integration stuff. So it becomes habitual in the same way that I, you know, go to the gym and I do my things. I know that what works for me based on the algorithm, knowing me and seeing me and watching me biometrically, passively understanding with some cool stuff in there, like natural language processed journaling and AI driven music plans and that kind of stuff can put me on the path of what's the optimum state behavior at what time for my own mental wealth. So what puts my brain in the game best? It's going to be different than yours, someone else's. And so that's what we're building over on that side of the uh, of the ecosystem and um, ultimately distributing all the protocols as well. So if your therapist wants to use ketamine for depression or wants to use some other thing for some other indication, we have the evidence and the science in behind that. So we can track you to how the clinical trial went. We can optimize you to get the outcome
1: only for our listeners at com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. This is an industry that I mentioned earlier still has some taboo, right? People have, they project a lot of feelings onto it. And so part of what's going to happen is going to be there's going to be changes in regulation and the science community needs to coalesce around it, a lot of things like that that are out of your control, right? So you can Mm -hmm. control certain things, other bits aren't. As you think about how the industry evolves, how do you manage that? Because I think a lot of times, you know, we don't have a lot of entrepreneurs on our show who are building something that, you know, you have to like also change not just mindset, but like the legal and regulatory environments. How, Mm -hmm. How does that kind of play into the way you plan growth
0: great question so there's two pieces and you tagged into one of them like straight away which is cultural so we're in the echo chamber right now all the psychedelics people think everybody knows they don't we're the very like cutting edge of the early early adopters we haven't even gotten to the early adopters or the early majority any of that so we have culture to do okay that's fine we can do that because we can get outcomes and that shifts culture and most of change is based on referral. So if it worked for me and then you tell your friend and you trust them and it worked for them and and we talk about mental health now, so we believe the culture will change because we will transcend and um, this idea of not talking about what worked for us to be optimally in mind. But the second piece around regulation is, um, candidly, not to be so myopic. We're a globe, it turns out, and this practice is legal in places. Uh, So we can start getting the outcomes and we can start bringing this work to locations where this practice is legal. And then again, as that's proven and shown to be safe and efficacious and the outcomes are consistent, uh, folks like us in North America can can look to those locations and go, right, we might co-opt or adopt that way of being. So for me in building this, particularly because the SaaS platform side is quite easy, we just pop it up in another location. And that was the design of de-risking the strategy. Um, So currently we have uh, some locations in the States doing ketamine, some locations in Canada. But next we look to the UK where you could do psilocybin. Um, You can do some other things down there. And then when we look to South America, then we can unlock things like Ibogaine which is another program we're running. Ibogaine is most useful for opiate use disorder. If you can believe it, 72% of people who do an Ibogaine journey, which by the way is not short, 16 to 24 hours, one of the hardest journeys there are. Wow, wow. But come out, 74% 72% of people come out of that with no withdrawal symptoms and no cravings for a number of months. And anybody who knows someone who tried to get off opiates or Oxy or Coke or whatever the thing is, um, knows that the come off is hard as hell. And a, a, a large reason why a lot of people don't come off it is the physical pain of coming off it. And then the, the cravings afterwards are just very hard to ignore. But Ibogaine is proving to be tremendously spe- effective. So places where that's legal, we can start practicing today.
1: The world, it's true what you say. I think t- sometimes we just think that the U.S. and Europe and Canada, of course, will include Canada today. Uh, is Is the only place, but of course, it's a huge world that you're going after. Kelsey, before we end, I just want to, I imagine a lot of people want to learn more. So mm-hmm. if people want to learn more and just educate themselves and they're curious, and we're not endorsing anything on this. This is a show where it's not medical advice. This is just, this is exploring, you know, a, a very interesting part of our universe where, where could they find out more?
0: Okay, I'm going to give three resources. One is a guy named Hamilton Morris, who's uh, on our advisory committee and helps us do our drug dev. He has a show on Vice called Hamilton's Pharmacopia, mm-hmm. where he takes all of these drugs on camera. He's a chemist and a, and a biographer. And he walks through not only the like traditional cultural pieces around what they do, he talks about how they work and you can actually witness a person utilizing it. And it's quite... It's a smashing program, Hamilton's pharmacopoeia. It's on vice. The second thing I would say is there's a movie it's on Netflix. It's called fantastic fungi, F U N G H I. And if you haven't taken it in, it's both, a beautiful spectacle of nature. So if you're just nature nut, it's cool too. But it walks through some of the early psychedelic work and talks about some of the more current research. So it's a a nice one-on-one on the whole industry. And for anybody who's kind of at that tipping point of just going, okay, tell me a bit more, that's a great one. And then the third thing is a book that has changed, I would say most of the people's minds is a book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. So if you're at all psychedelic curious, I think those are three great places for you to go outside of MindCure or hitting me up to, to just do a little bit of digging and watching and, and exploring the ecosystem of what I think is the future of mental health care and performance myself.
1: Yeah. And if you do want to check out Kelsey and MindCure, you can go to MindCure.com or you can check out Instagram at Mind Cure Health or on Twitter and Instagram at Kelsey Ramsden. Kelsey, thanks so much for being here.
0: Oh, it's a great pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on the web at FOMOSapiens.com or PatrickMcGinnis.com, where you can get all kinds of free resources to live a more decisive and entrepreneurial life. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City.